Welcome to the Developing Leaders Impacting Kids podcast, a podcast all about sharing ideas, tips, and strategies to help you develop as a kid min leader. Thanks for listening to today's episode, featuring a favorite presentation from one of our training experiences. To download today's show notes or to learn more about our certification program, training intensives, and institutes of children's ministry, visit our website, cogop.org slash children. Well, good afternoon. Good to see all of you here today. Wow. You know, uh, when you find out that you've been asked to speak, it's an honor. But then when you find out when you've been asked to speak, you know, it can be really a real big honor or kind of a step down. When they put you after lunch, it's kind of like if you're a negativist, you say, oh, man, they put me after lunch. Everyone's going to be snoozing. You have nothing to share anyway. If you're an optimist, you say they give me the most difficult slot because they know I can keep you all awake. So I'm figuring that's what we're going to do, okay? So uh, we're going we're gonna to try to keep you awake. I really was uh, honored when Kathy gave me a call. Kathy, uh, when they were looking for speakers, they thought about it, and they said, well, let's, let's think of the most brilliant intellect we can find. Let's invite them, and they'll wow us. And uh, they called that person, they were busy. So then they said, well, if we can't get the smartest, let's get the best-looking person we can find. So even if they have nothing to say, we'll enjoy looking at them. So they called that person and they were busy. So then they said, well, if we can't get the best looking or the smartest, let's get the finest communicator. Someone will just rivet us and we'll sit on the front of our chairs and we'll get them to come. And they were busy. So then they called me and they said, would you like to come? And I said, yes, because I felt bad for turning them down the first three times. So I just figured, you know, I should come. And I had an opportunity in the back room to uh, meet uh, Reverend Clements. He's just a wonderful, wonderful man. He's intelligent. He is a wonderful visionary leader. He's brilliant. He's, uh, can't seem to read your writing, Sam. But um, he's a real good guy. And so I think you're honored to have him leading your, uh, your place. Anyway. I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to do something that will help us to think in terms of what I believe, I honestly believe, is the most important thing we can be doing in our churches. And, and I want you to, just for a moment, if you could, take your hand off of your, your self-image, your identity, whether you're a children's pastor, youth pastor, a senior pastor, as I was for 20-some years, And I want you to think in terms of God's calling for you, because I think many of us sort of got sucked into this river of church and ministry, and we're doing what we're doing now without sort of stepping out and rethinking. That's what I love about events like this, and I think it's so strategic that that you have uh, leaders that are willing to put together team conferences. Very strategic. I think it's also very strategic, these sort of unpacking sessions you have after general sessions. I haven't yet been to a a conference that does that. I think that is cutting edge. And I think those are the sorts of things, when when Kathy came to our leader certification process, I was so impressed because she was the first and still is the only denominational executive who has gone through the training. So what that tells me is that you have some great leaders who are thinking outside the box. They're thinking ahead. And if we don't think ahead in these days, we, I guarantee, will be left behind. In fact, this is Church of God prophecy, right? So can can I say something prophetic to you? 
I honestly believe from the bottom of my heart, if you do not, in a systemic approach, identify and develop your leaders at a young age in multiples of hundreds and thousands, you as a movement will not make it. And I have studied all my life, all my adult life, I've studied leadership, I've studied church, I've studied how we do ministry, and I honestly believe, I honestly believe that we will not see more than 100 years for most of our denominations. We used to think that those of us in evangelical realms used to think that it was only the main lines because of their washed down doctrine, that that's why they're declining. Now we realize it wasn't their doctrine, it was really just the institutionalization of organisms as they grow and they change. So I want you to rethink your calling and I'm gonna plant the seed that maybe your calling in addition to what you're doing now is to identify and to raise up young leaders. To help you think that more effectively, I'm gonna challenge you. I'm gonna give you, in just a moment, 30 seconds, and here's my challenge to you. I want you to move a minimum of two rows and five seats from where you're sitting now. You've got 45 seconds to do that, go. A minimum of two rows and five seats from where you're at now, go. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. <clears throat> oh, you missed the promised land. Some of you missed the promised land. I apologize for those of you with babies and uh, strollers. All right, now you know that feeling you just felt, that feeling of irritation, that feeling of frustration, that feeling of what's going on here? That's the feeling that is felt whenever people are asked to change. Leaders lead change. I wrote a book a few years ago with the lead pastor of Willow Creek, a little church in Illinois, and that church is called, that book's called How to Change Your Church Without Killing It. Someone said I could write a book on how to kill your church without changing it, but, <laughs> but I found that church change is very, very difficult. In fact, uh, I've been passionate about leadership development. So I've written half a dozen books on it, but I came to the realization after a decade of teaching pastors that return on investment with adults is very low. And I did something that rarely happens in ministry, I devolved. I went from being a lead pastor and talking to lead pastors to rethinking second half of my life, what am I gonna do? My, my, I grew up in a farm in Iowa. You know, that Forrest Gump's mom says that life's a box of chocolates, you don't know what you're gonna get. Well, well my dad said that life is like a roll of toilet paper. The less you have left, the faster it goes. So at midlife, feeling my toilet paper run out, I said, okay, I gotta invest in what's gonna count. And we started tooling on this audacious idea, what would it be like if we took executive caliber training, stuff that if you went down to Greensboro and paid 6,800 bucks for a five-day executive training, it would be the same sort of methods and the same sort of content. And five years ago, we started prototyping it. I had no thought kids could ever learn this, but we have learned how to identify kids. We've also learned how that by the age of 10, they can learn some incredible, some incredible socially sophisticated concepts like team building, like, uh, like how to do conflict resolution, 
like how to do vision casting, stuff that I've not heard 40, 45-year-olds articulate, I started hearing. And I knew that two years ago, I needed to pull the plug on my paycheck and benefits and start a nonprofit that would teach people how to teach kids to do these sorts of things. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your person next to you, not your mate. If you're married to the person next to you, you can't talk to them. You're saying, thank you, God. And, and I want you to just, either in groups of two or three, I want you to share what is one thing that has changed in my ministry in the last three years, and what do I want to get out of this session right now, okay? I don't know if you're gonna get it, but what are you gonna get out of this session? How has your ministry changed the last three years? Take a minute and talk to your partner. Make sure, look around, make sure no one's left behind. Thirty seconds. All right, great. Good job. Good job. So, of these, some of these books I've written, as I look at what we've done, what we've accomplished, and what we've yet to accomplish, I've came, come to this conclusion that the most important ministry you can do in your church, the single most important ministry, is to identify and develop young leaders. And it is not just a theological issue that I'll introduce you, but it is a sociological issue. It is an organism and organizational issue that because we wait so long to do leadership development, we wait beyond the time that people are really pliable and moldable. And because we sort of wait for society or the organization to call out those that we say are leaders, we only have a small number. And so what I would like to propose to you today is that regardless of where you're at, whether you're a senior pastor, whether you're a youth pastor, whether you're a children's pastor, whether you're a preschool worker, that you begin your ministry afresh, that you change the way you look at what God's called you to do, and that you begin to understand that for us to really enter into the promised land of the future, we've got to think different thoughts, and to do that, we need fresh young leaders who are effective and ethical in greater numbers than we've ever had before. You see, leadership is God's way of organizing people, of allowing them to use their strengths in order to serve each other. And God's given a small percent of individuals as a unique ability to lead better than others. Now, we're gonna talk in just a moment about defining what leadership is, but in our culture, the culture of equality, we have the idea that whatever you wanna do, whatever you wanna be, you can do it. I mean, to say anything other than that, it seems like blasphemy. Yet, most cultures historically have never taught that. The Bible doesn't teach that. I, I mean, think about it. 
If I went home today and I say, okay, I'm gonna play for the NBA, and I'm gonna put a picture of Michael Jordan on my refrigerator, I'm gonna visualize myself leaping and stuffing and going down the court. Well, that's not gonna happen because I'm an overweight 51-year-old white guy, you know? So I can dream it, I can believe it, but it's delusional. We would be far more effective at saying, how has God gifted me? How has God wired me? And how can we find those individuals, young, fresh, pliable, whom God has wired with the ability to influence? Some of those kids in your youth group are the most irritating kids of the whole bunch. Some of those kids in the preschool are the little bossy kids that you would just say, what in the world's gotten into you, a demon? But I'm telling you, some of those kids, God has blessed with this sort of a natural ability that when they sneeze, half of the other kids look at them. When they say yes, half the other kids say yes. And I want you amidst your ministry to make sure that you point out these kids, these teens, that you groom them and develop them because you see that is how we are gonna multiply ministry. If you do not have effective leadership in your church or your ministry, you will not succeed as you could. All of us have different opportunities. All of us have different potentials. But you will never live up to the potential God has given you if you do not have effective leadership and if effective leaders are not emerging and being developed. Churches are uniquely positioned to identify and develop leaders while they're moldable. Overlook this ministry and you'll set back everyone. So we need to take advantage. You see, in history, Three things mark history more than anything. In fact, almost more than everything put together. One is disasters, whether it's a tsunami or a hurricane or a tornado or a volcano or a plague. It's discoveries. I live just about a mile or an hour south of Silicon Valley where they invented the iPhone and iPad and Google and eBay and Facebook and all sorts of discoveries happening throughout history change it. But the third is leaders, and by far the greatest impact of all three are leaders, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Leaders come in all different shapes and sizes. There are spiritual leaders. There are pop and cultural and political leaders. There are also leaders who have left terrible scars in society and history, even in contemporary history. Leaders who we look at them and we say, how in the world could people do such terrible things? Recent years has been given us a lot of leaders to look at and say, oh, I'm so disappointed. And it seems like we just have this endless string of leadership scandals, whether it's in the church or in politics or the corporate realm, and we gotta ask the question, what can we do? So let's define leadership, because I had 700 books of leadership before I donated them a year and a half ago to Denver Seminary. I got, I got tired of schlepping them around the country. But I have found that of all 700, maybe only 30, even took a poke at trying to define what leadership was. So we're gonna define it as we talk about it here today. Leadership is a process of helping people accomplish together what they could not as individuals. Leaders are those who get leadership going. All right, I'm not here to debate you what the best definition is, but that's the one we're gonna use today. Now we're gonna talk about a different kind of leader in our remaining time because I want you to begin thinking differently about who it is, our leaders in our church, and where our focus and the impetus of our ministry ought to be. You see, if we don't seize certain opportunities, they will be gone forever. 
life stewardship mandates that we be savvy about opportunities given us. Someone said the best way to change an adult is to focus on the child. Well, the same is true of leaders. I'm convinced of it. In fact, we have sort of targeted four different seasons in a young leader's life. Spring is two to nine years of age, yeah? Those of you who work with preschool, you know some of those kids are there in charge of the rest. They get all the other kids to put their toys away. They tell all the other kids what they're gonna do. And sometimes they're sort of irritating, but you can almost see out of the chute there are some kids that are just sort of wired to influence. Our major focus of our curriculum the last five years has been 10 to 13. And you'll see in a moment why we believe that is so strategic. The fall is 14 to 18 and winter is 19 to 22. So we're not saying that you quit being a leader after 22. We're saying in the life of a young leader, there are different seasons and each season ought to have a different strategy. Now just take one season alone. Take preteens in our culture. There are 24 million preteens. If you want to understand the preteen culture, just watch Disney or Nickelodeon. They figured it out big time because tweens spend $40 billion and they influence their parents to spend another $140 billion. So if you've heard that big sucking sound out of your bank account, chances are you got at least one preteen. We got a couple of them in the White House now. But look at this importance of this time period. You see, most countries, most cultures, and historically, the rite of passage to adulthood is between the ages of 12 and 15. The Aboriginal walkabout, the bar mitzvah, catechism, confirmation, even Jesus at age 12 was saying, I need to be about my father's business. You see, if you study sociology and anthropology, the idea of adolescence is relatively modern. Probably less than the last 100 years have we said, okay, now in the information age, it's important for kids to have extra education to prepare for the real world. So we're going to childhood. But they're really not children anymore, so we're going to call this phase adolescence. Adolescence is defined as the phase between adulthood and childhood, childhood and adulthood. In fact, they now define adolescence is that stage before you're able to live on your own. So really adulthood is not defined as, is defined as the ability to live on your own. So some of us are raising 28-year-old adolescents because they're still living at home, okay? Now what we're saying is because we have sort of elongated childhood and, pro, and put off adulthood, we have lowered the bar of expectations on these what historically have always been seen as adults. The 14 and 15 year olds in your church, they are historically and always have been adults. I live in Monterey, beautiful coastal seaport little village there, but inland about 15 miles where 80% of all the lettuce is produced in the United States is a town called Salinas. It is one of the most violent cities of all America because of gangs. Do you know when the gangs start recruiting their members? 11-12. Now they didn't go to executive training school or Stanford to learn that. They knew intuitively that if we're gonna recruit new members and discover our leaders, we better do it early. And so that's exactly what they do. This is why I think the 1013 window is so, so important. You see, the blue line is basically moral development. If you study moral psychology, Kohlberg and all the people who followed him, you know that by the age of two, we begin discovering our morality, our character, our ethics, who we are, right and wrong. Now, most of them agree that by the age of 10, we are primarily shaped who we are. By 12, 13, we're cooked. 
You know, I mean, all you youth pastors out there, you're just cooling off the donuts, you know, or the cookies because they're already baked. And so all the children's ministers said, <laughs> now it isn't that we become immoral at, page, at, at age 12, 13, 14, unless of course you're raising one right now and you think, you know, that they're demon possessed. But we're, we're talking about the fact that we don't change significantly. You study the research done by Barna Research and you know that most people who are followers of Christ made that decision before the age of 13. Okay, there's something going on here, right? Now look at the red line. The red line is our cognitive development. Again, it starts around two. We start thinking processes. It crescendos at around 35. How many of you are over 35 here in this room? Okay, we're has-beens. All right, stick to your crossword puzzles and your Sudoku because it's not getting any better. Now look at the, how they cross, okay? You've got this big jump. Really, it's a, not a crescendo like that, just like a nice curve. It's really more of a jump up at about age 10. Fourth grade, something happens where the cognitions kick in and we're still morally, in our character, we're still pliable. We're still moldable. Here's what I want you to do with your left hand. Put your feet on the floor. With your left hand, grab your calf. And with your right hand, grab the leg of the chair beside you. Okay, if it's a big fat leg, that's not the chair. That is the person next to you. <laughs> left hand, the leg of your calf. Or your, foot, your hand on your calf and the right on the leg of your chair. Now just without saying anything, squeeze them both really hard. The left hand is a young leader. The right hand is an adult leader. Okay? Now, where are you going to put your money? Where are you going to put your time? Where are you going to put your energy? I say we think young. You say, well, can anyone be a leader? I'm asked that constantly when I travel. It's interesting because most IQ tests only measure two IQs. They measure math slash logic and languages. Academia is designed to focus on two intelligences, math and languages. Now what happens if your strength isn't math or your strength isn't language? Then you struggle through school. Does that mean you're a has-been that God hasn't gifted you? No. Howard Gardner at Harvard University has discovered eight intelligences. You see, some people have the uncanny ability to move their body in such a way that they're faster than everybody else. They're more agile than anybody else. They can shoot a, a ball through a hoop. They can throw a baseball faster, more accurate than anybody else. Other people are incredibly good at, at drawing. They're artistic. They just, they sit down and they write something or draw something and you say, my goodness, how do you do that? Well, there's also an intelligence called interpersonal intelligence. And Gardner says that within interpersonal intelligence is a small domain called leadership, meaning that leaders have an uncanny intelligence ability to be able to read social situations, to read people, and to get their ideas across so that other people will follow them. Now, the good thing is that almost all of us are good in one or two of these areas. But you see, that means we're also not going to be so good in the rest of the areas. Our job is to not write children like a book, it's to read children like a book. Our job as the next generation is to help the up-and-comers find out what are they good at and how can I leverage you. The positive psychology movement has taught us that we're far more successful when we focus on our strengths and leverage those than we try to improve our weaknesses. In fact, the only time you really wanna work on a weakness is if it's inhibiting a strength. Now you say, 
That doesn't make sense. Let me give you another idea. Because again, in our culture in America, we have the idea of equality. Whatever you want to do, you can be. I was at Stanford University a few weeks ago talking with Bill Damon. If you're in education, you've heard of Bill because he's one of those heroes. He's written classics like The Moral Child and Path to Purpose. And I was telling him what we were doing in our research with Kid Lead and coming up with executive caliber curriculum, leadership training for preteens. And he was amazed, and then he proceeded to tell me something that I thought he had probably been with me my last 18 months of cold calling on schools. He said, you know, in America, we value equality. Now that's a good value. He says, but the problem is if you take any value too far, it ceases to be effective. He says the problem in our educational institutions is that if you have a child who's very creative and high energy to get things done, they get overlooked because we treat everybody the same. Well, folks, here he is in the College of Education of Stanford University saying the schools and our culture don't get it. We have got to lead the way. We have to appreciate what God has done in us and through us, and some of that means some of us are called to lead. He's gifted us that way. Look at Exodus chapter 18. There is a whole nation of people. They're just wandering. And Moses is trying to do it all. He is your stereotypical church pastor. He's taking out the garbage. He's washing the windows. He's mowing the grass. And then he goes into a study and he preps his sermon. And then he opens the doors and he locks up the doors. He's doing it all. Jethro comes out for the first church consultation. And Jethro is this person who is honoring God. They do a, a sacrifice the day before. Then he goes out and watches them. And then he very, in an honoring way, says, what you're doing is not good. Here's what you need to do. Find people who can oversee a thousand other people. And then you find some other people who can oversee a hundred other people. And then you find some people who can oversee 50. And then you find some people who can oversee 10. And then you unleash them. He says, not only will you avoid burning yourself out, but also you will satisfy the needs of the people. You know why you have grouchy people? It's because you're trying to do too much yourself. Stop it, Mo. No, Mo, Mo. No, Mo, Mo. I love it because before that, Jethro says to Moses, you know, your daughter and her children have come to me. <laughs> I don't know if it was a satire or what, but it was kind of like Moses hadn't spent any time at home lately, and so his wife went home to be with her family, and the kids didn't even recognize you as dad anymore. You ever had that time in ministry when you burn them both ends of the candle and you come home and, and, and your kids say, hey mom, who is that guy at the table tonight? Haven't seen him for a while. Was that the mailman? No, honey, that was the pastor the pastor of the church, God's called him to burn himself out and to make everybody dissatisfied because he's doing it all himself. Now you see, it wasn't a heart problem. It wasn't that he had a bad attitude. He wasn't strategic. Now look at what Jesus did, okay? You say, well, that's OT. Let's look at NT. What did Jesus do? Jesus, Jesus didn't build a building and say, y'all come at 9 and 10.30 contemporary and classic services. He didn't have Sunday school. He didn't hire a children's pastor, a youth pastor. What did he do? He picked out 12 people. That sounds elitist. Only 12? What about the rest? Okay, now, now think about it. He's got the same DNA as God. He knows his time on earth is limited. If you were 
God, and you knew you only had three years, don't you think you'd pick the methodology that's probably going to outlast every other methodology? And he picked 12 people. 12 people. And he did leadership development for three years. In fact, many times he ran away from the crowds. Mark chapter 1, it says he went up early in the morning to pray to his father. When he came down from the mountain, his disciples came to him. They said, where have you been? There are people waiting for you. The first words out of his mouth were, let us go to another village. Do you think he would have been laid off conveniently by the church board? What was that about? He was listening to the father, and the father said, you know what? You can't go shallow with the crowds. Because after all is said and done, they'll never be deep and you'll have nothing left. I want you to go deep with a few so that after three years, 11 of the 12, it's stuck. And we are here in this room today because he picked the right methodology. I'm here to tell you that regardless of how the church of Christ in America has evolved, we need to get back to the basics. And the basics say, before you do anything else, develop your leaders. Develop your influencers. All the other stuff is fine, but don't do anything else until you develop your leaders. You say, I don't know what to do. Get someone who does. Find a lay person. You've got leadership in your church all you need. God's put it there. But it may not be you. It may be someone else. It may be a layman. It may be a businessman that you need to disciple for a couple years, and then you let him or her loose. But the bottom line is God's given certain gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 said, if your gift is leadership, lead with gusto. Don't just sit on it. Don't just give them a stack of bulletins and say, hey, you know, be friendly as people come in. Would you do that? Oh, my goodness. Ephesians 4, Matthew 25 says, one was given one talent, one two, one five. So God gives certain gifts to certain people, and he gives them in certain capacities as well. Now, here's some plausible leadership categories. If you're still pushing back on me saying, no, I think everybody can be a leader. All right, so how do you define leadership? A lot of people in our culture define leadership as responsible, high self-esteem, ethical, good citizen, confident, faithful. We say, you are a leader, you're faithful. Okay, that's personal leadership. We want that for everybody, don't we? Managerial leadership is able to facilitate smaller group projects, maintaining existing processes. Probably about 90% of pastors in the United States have managerial leadership. To a certain degree, because of their position, they can get things done. But less than 10%, I'm convinced, and George Barna says in his research that's true, less than 10% have a gift of leadership, and that is what we refer to as organizational leadership. The ability to cast vision, lead others in problem solving, catalyze organizational change. So here's the bottom line, if you know you're a leader, if people are following you. If they're not following you, you're not a leader. It doesn't matter what you call yourself, it doesn't matter what the, the name of the magazine is you read every quarter, it doesn't matter what other people call you, the bottom line is, you really aren't leading. So in any given general population, probably about 10 to 20% have a high degree. They, they have way more leadership capacity than the rest. These are what we are calling habitual leaders. They almost always seek out an environment where they can lead. In fact, sometimes they try to lead where they shouldn't lead. Because everything's going fine, you don't need a leader, you need a manager. You always need managers, you don't always need leaders. But in times of change, you always need leaders. And we are living in a time of change. 
So unlike any other time, you, whether you are gifted or not at leading, you need to go find those people who are good at leading. You need to disciple them and you need to unleash them so that you can preach, so that you can teach, so that you can counsel, so that you can manage. But you've got to unleash the gift of leadership in your church because you know what? Society is not going toward Jesus. And we got to change the way we do business. 60% of people are what we call situational leaders. They can lead in situations for a time, but then they get tired and they sort of have to step back. And then there are 20 to 30% of people that you say lead, they want to throw up. They, they look for the exit sign in the back of the room. Now, if you put them in charge of a, a task, don't do that if it requires them to lead other people. Just bless them and say, you know, we need some great followers. Could you do that? If you go to our website, you can find uh, the first ever leadership aptitude assessment. It's free. You actually take it on kids. Okay, you, you fill it out. You take it on kids. And I'd encourage you to push the parent button, even if they're not your kids or you don't have kids. Push the parent button because then you'll get an automated response with a key. If you don't push the parent button, you won't get any response. We'll just get it. This is what we use as sort of when we train the trainers of how to find those kids who have social influence. And the parents can fill one out, but someone who's not a parent needs to fill one out. These are people who've seen other kids in social set settings because society has that way of sort of reflecting who are the kids who have that ability. Here's what I want you to do. Discuss with your partner. Okay, go back to your group of two or group of three. Why does it make sense that God would endow a few to empower the many, and why does it make sense to identify and develop leaders young? Take a minute or two and respond to those two questions with your partner or with your two partners that you did originally. All right, let's talk about seven common church responses that inhibit young leader development. One of the things we're going to unpack after the break is how do we reduce the inhibitors that probably are happening in every church in this room but we're not aware of? because they tend to happen in society because we tend not to think of kids as leaders or with significant leadership potential because leadership is what adults do. We say things like, someday you're gonna be a lawyer, someday he's gonna be president, someday, you know. It's usually the bossy kids or the good negotiators or the troublemakers, but we subtly say, but not now, but not now, later, when you get old and crusty, when you get hardened like the leg on my chair, then you'll be a leader. Then God can use you. I think he can use him now in some pretty amazing ways. Here are some ways we inadvertently inhibit our kids in their leadership development. One, assuming leading is only for adults. When we train our trainers to use our curriculum, we have the language that every student who comes through the door is now called a leader. Because we've seen their social influence surveys. We're not trying to do this for everybody. We're trying to find out those 10 to 20% of kids who just are wired to influence. And we want to encourage them to influence well because if they don't do it well, they will do it poorly. Now, if they've got character but they do it poorly, they're incompetent. If they lack character and they do it well, they become dangerous. So what would it be like if we could instill the character of these young leaders along with competencies so that they were really good and also experienced? That means we have to sort of go back and say, okay, let's start. 
Let's start in the preschool. You know, let's ask the preschool Sunday school teachers, okay, which of these kids? And then you start letting them sort of lead little activities, little blocks, putting away the toys, little drawing pictures, all the stuff you do in preschool. Just ask Sally or just ask Benny or just ask whoever it is. And then you start doing that. Two, assuming those in leader roles in the church are gifted at leading. Should I have not said that? Is that okay to say that, Sam? Okay. Because, you know, just because you're the pastor doesn't mean you're a leader. Okay? Now, you are in office, but you're not necessarily by gift. Just because you're a youth pastor doesn't mean you're a leader. Just because you're a Sunday school teacher or a children's pastor. It's not bad not to be a leader. That's the sad thing that people like, like, like me. But what we've done in our culture is we've elevated leadership so high that now we feel like we're inadequate. You know what? The first chapter of the book I wrote on Kid Lead says, your child can be a wonderful success and never be a leader. We need to take success and leadership and separate them. You can be successful as a teacher. You can be successful as a manager. You can be successful as a nurturer. You can be successful as a prayer. But if God's wired you to lead, you have to lead to be a success. So stop the game of saying everybody ought to be a leader and say, okay, leaders, we want you to lead well so the rest of us can do our job well. Because we've probably all by this state in life been in a situation where we were well-led and we love it. I love to be well-led and I'm a leader. We've also probably been in situations or churches or ministries where we were poorly led. Oh, is that a bummer. Oh. Yeah, no spree decor, no excitement, it's conflict, it's just going nowhere. Don't get to use our strengths. We're not ministering in our sweet spot. It's just, it's a downer. A third thing is assuming kids' youth have equal gifting, thus overlooking those with extra ability. Okay, we talked about that. In the workshop I do tonight, we're actually going to talk about how to identify those qualities, those indicators that will tip you off to say, oh, oh I think I got a leader here. Four, confusing leadership with discipleship and service. When we go pitch Lead Now, which is a program for preteens, to churches, a lot of times we'll hear, oh, we already have a, a leadership program. And that's what we're going to look at after when you come back, is you're going to actually do a student leadership development assessment on your organization. And we are going to give you an outline. It's actually in your notebooks. And you're going to sort of be your own consultant. And you're going to analyze how healthy is our organization. And it may be a little embarrassing after I've gotten up here and said it's the most important thing of your ministry. But the bottom line is, to get better, we have to realize if we're not well. And so we're going to talk about that. But sometimes when I talk to churches, they say, oh, we already do leadership. I say, already, what does that look like? Oh, yeah, well, we get these committed kids together on Wednesday nights. We do this in-depth Bible study with them. And I say, well, that's good, good. That's discipleship, yeah. But it's not leadership. Now, you should always disciple your leaders, but discipleship is different than leadership. Leadership is teaching them how to lead, how to get teams of people to work together when they don't like each other. How do you deal with conflict? What do you do with limited resources like limited time or limited money or limited talents? How do, how, do you, how do you bring out the best of everybody so that together the potluck is much better than all of us eating little box lunches? Missing rolls and missing entrees and missing salads and desserts, God forbid. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we all come together and you bring the fried chicken and you bring the collard greens and you bring the apple pie because you're good at apple pie, okay? Now, we can bring it all together and it's a beautiful, sumptuous feast. We show up with our apple pie and that gets old after a few bites. 
we're looking at the chicken over there, and the chicken guy, he's looking at the salad guy, and the salad guy is looking at the, you know what I'm saying? So the role of leadership is different than discipling, and it's different than service. I talk to a lot of churches, oh, we do leadership. I say, what does it look like? Well, we, we teach kids how to sing on the stage in the children's church, and we teach other kids how to pass out bulletins, and we teach other kids how to turn the knobs on the PA system. I say, that's good. That sounds like service to me. Well, yeah, yeah, we want leaders to serve, yeah. But it's not leadership. Do they head up the team themselves? Do you give them a budget to spend? Do you give them a challenge? Do you give them mentoring of how to work together as a team? Well, no, that's what adults do. Well, it's not leadership then. It's service. Service is good, but it's not leadership. And the fifth thing is shutting down young leaders or labeling them as troublemakers. I'll bet some of the best leaders in your Sunday school and church youth group are some of the biggest troublemakers. Because when you're trying to stand up there and get everybody to comply to listen to the Holy Spirit, someone is making body noises and everyone's cutting up. Someone is looking around, making some funny gestures and everyone's cutting up. Now you see, those are the influencers and they bug you because you feel this tug of war, you feel this tension and you sort of alienate them because they're not for you. What you've just done is turned an influencer against you. You never want to do that. Because you see, they will always influence. They'll either influence for you or they'll influence against you. So you gotta pick. You gotta pick. What are you gonna do? You don't have to like them, but you better get close to them. You ever seen boxers? Boxers, when they're all hot and sweaty, sometimes they hug each other. What is that about, you know? You know why they hug each other? Because they're afraid that if they get at a certain distance, the other guy's gonna knock them out. You always want to stay away from the end of your opponent's glove, and you want to sort of stay close within the reach. Now, it's the same thing with your young leaders. Teachers and youth pastors and children's pastors who get that, they love those kids because they turn them loose, and they use their social influence for the ministry, not against them. It's the same thing with pastors and church boards. You've got influencers on your church board. You've got them in your pews. And if you tick them off, they may leave the church if you're lucky, and if they're, you're not so lucky, they're going to use their influence, and you're going to be polishing up your resume saying, well, I think God's led me to another place. Uh, you know. <laughs> Six, lack of intentional developments that targets their leadership ability. And seven, waiting too long to develop the character of leaders. I go to some churches, and they say, oh, yeah, we've got leadership development. We're not interested. They do it in high school. Well, that's nice, but you know what? You've given up on their character. I mean, you can talk about character, but let's be honest, let's be real. Moral psychologists say that character is pretty much set by 14. You can buff and polish, but you really can't shape and mold. So what we're going to talk about after the break is how can we get to these young leaders while they're still wet? Let me just, let me just give you an idea, because this is, this is kind of a blue ocean strategy that I think a denomination like yours could embrace. And I use it as an illustration of what I hope to, after our break, you begin to think and do and get out of concepts and say, what's a strategy? What can we do tomorrow? What are the next steps? For example, if you wanted to raise up over 3,000 young leaders as a denomination, year one, train 50 trainers, certify them to use whatever program it is that makes sense, but use it and make it concentrated. You'd have Two trainers per club, you have 15 students per club. That's not a lot, but that's 375. Now in year two, if you went 
to the ones you already had and added 20, that's 900. You add 20 more the next year, that's 15. By year five, you have over 3,000 budding leaders. You see, without a strategy, without a plan, you're not going to have that many. Let me give you something to think about as we close. Any of you know who this man is? Jusain Bolt. He's the fastest man in history. He can run 100 meters under 9.5 seconds. The dude is fast. But I got money in my pocket now that I'll bet you, I'll bet you without a shadow of a doubt, in fact, that uh, I got 20 bucks here says I could beat him. I'm a fat middle-aged white guy, but I could beat this guy in a race. I guarantee you, any takers, any takers, 20 bucks says I can beat him. 20 bucks, any takers. Oh, oh. In a full race, not an eating race, a full race. All you have to do is give me a big enough head start. <laughs> what if we gave the young leaders in our church a 10 to 20 year head start? Do you think maybe we would see the best leaders our church has ever seen in history? Do you wonder if they had faith at what they would do to our churches and what they would do with our ministry and what they would do to lead us into the next century like never before? I believe that is the most important thing you can do. Let me pray for you. Lord, thanks for the fun we had today, and I just thank you for my brothers and sisters who uh, some of them are thinking some new thoughts. And Lord, I pray that you'll forgive me if in any way I've offended or been disrespectful because you know the passion in me says we've got to change the tide. The tide's moving out in our culture about you and Jesus and holiness. And we have to, we have to turn the tide. And the only way we can do that, Lord, is with a whole host of leaders who will then multiply their influence on society and church and ministry. And I pray that here today it would begin it would begin fresh here today and through Kathy and through others in leadership here that we would multiply those influencers so that when it was time for us to cross in the Jordan, the bulk of the people wouldn't say, no, there are giants there. I pray that the leadership of this church here today would face those giants and say, you know what? It is a good land and we can take it. And we claim this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To download today's show notes or to learn more about our certification program, training intensives, and institutes of children's ministry, visit our website, cogop.org children. 